Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. episode, we are going to explore the world of corporate social responsibility and what this really means for our industry. We will not only define social responsibility, but look at how this translates into something meaningful for the typical distributor salesperson and end client sourcing promotional products. The apparel sector makes up more than 40% of our industry's sales, so it's fitting that we get the chance to speak with someone who knows a thing or two about apparel and social responsibility. It's a great honor for me to welcome Jeremy Lott to the SKUcast as the person who will help us better understand this topic and how it's become one of the driving forces in our industry today. Jeremy is the president of Sanmar based in Seattle. He and his family have made social responsibility a cornerstone of their company's strategy and key decisions about sourcing, partnerships, and product design are all heavily influenced by the company's commitment to doing good in the marketplace. Jeremy, welcome to the SKUcast. It's fabulous to have you on the program. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, this is going to be an amazing, uh, amazing interview. So thanks so much. Um, let's start off with uh, with one big one. Can you define corporate social responsibility? Yeah. So I, I'll tell you that I think it's an it's a, a a term that has evolved over time, and and my sense is it'll continue to evolve. And and the way that I think about it, at least over the last, I'm going to say, uh, ten kind of plus years, is it, it evolved from for us, and I think for a lot of brands from don't do bad things to actually do good things. And that's a really simplistic way of saying it, but when we first started talking about social responsibility, it was don't use child labor, um, don't, you know, have kind of sweatshop environments, don't put your workers in an unsafe working environment. It was don't dump, you know, your your, uh, chemicals into the river systems. It was don't do these kind of bad things. And, you know, we had a real, there was a process around how do we make sure those bad things aren't happening and we had an auditing regime and a process around that. Uh, And and that certainly still exists, but I think where social responsibility is today and certainly where Sanmar is trying to move is that's not enough. In fact, that's the baseline is don't do bad things. It's okay, supply chain, factory partners, what are you doing good? It's not just you're not dumping your chemicals, but what are you doing um, to promote a healthy environment? Not just you're not using child labor, but how are you helping children in the communities that you're in? Um, Not just you're not paying people kind of a fair wage, but what are you doing to give them training, job skills, um, building the communities kind of um, that that uh, you know that, that you were involved in, and so it's this uh, you know what we like to say. Kind of, there was inside the fence. You know, the fence being here's our textile park where we're doing our production, and we were very much focused inside the fence. What's happening now? We're really thinking outside the fence. What's happening in the communities 
um, around us and how are we making a positive impact and so that's really I think where social responsibility uh, that's my definition of it that's where it's uh, evolving to um, we're not evolved yet but we are on our way so when did social responsibility become important to Sanmar I'm, I'm curious if you can tell me about that specific moment Hush, you know I don't know that there was an individual moment where something bad happened and we said you know oh crap we got to think about being socially responsible I think that um, I think that we were always a socially responsible company. I just think the term didn't exist. And so when I think about when my father started the company, he wanted to be an ethical company, you know, and that was kind of the word that we used maybe um, at the time in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, at the time we were, we bought t-shirts from people like Hanes and Fruit of the Loom and truckloads and we sold it in pieces, screen printers in the Seattle area. I mean, that was really our business for a long time. And, and being ethical for us meant you know, paying our suppliers on time. It meant treating our people well. It meant, um, you know, treating our customers well and being fair to them. So those, that ethical piece was always at like, I think, cornerstone of how my dad wanted to do business. Um, it, you know, and and as the company, um, you know, kind of evolved over time, those pieces were still there. They just grew. So, you know, uh, continuing to be a partner to our suppliers, to pay them, continue to do the right things for our employees and our customers, those are being, that's being socially responsible. Um, and that was always there from the beginning. This piece around supply chain and, and has really grown over the last, you know, 20 years because um, there's been a lot of, uh, it, it, that's how our company has grown. And, and I would say that, the apparel world was early because there were also a lot of problems in the apparel kind of supply chain. Um, and, you know, you go back to kind of the late 90s and some of the challenges Nike had and some of the visibility on it. Um, you know, it was clear to us at the time that we had to have a, um, a supply chain that we could be proud of and maybe more important that our customers and their customers could be proud of because we recognized really early that, you know, we don't really sell a Sanmar t-shirt, you know, or a Sanmar polo, as soon as it leaves our building and gets a logo, it's now a, you know, name the end user. It's Microsoft, it's Starbucks, it's, you know, Boeing. I'm just, you know, naming some Seattle companies, but it becomes their shirt really quickly. And, and they have a certain value system that they really care about. And so we recognized, I think really early, we had to make sure the product was made in a way that those companies could be proud of. And that's really how we thought about Kind of responsibility, but I but I think being ethical and treating people well uh, has been kind of a cornerstone of just the way my dad always wanted to do business and just the way you know he was as a person. Right. Well, and and so this gets me to this question about what things looked like in the seventies when Marty uh, and for those people who don't know Marty, Marty Lot, of course, is your father who who started the company. What was the state of social responsibility in the industry when when your dad first started the company in the seventies? So so let's we, we can maybe put the ethical side of things aside. Let's assume yeah. that that was just things that you did because you were a great company. But when you think about the, the state of the the supply chain, the state of the factories um, and the mills at that time compared to how they are right now, so. Well, I'll just I'll tell you a quick story. So when my dad started the company, uh, really before he started as a supplier, he was a you know he printed for a very short period of time, and he 
the stories he likes to tell is at the time, one of the largest suppliers in the company was a company out of New York. They were kind of a dry goods wholesaler. And he had ordered some yellow t-shirts. And they were, you know, Fruit of the Loom yellow t-shirts. And what came was some were fruit, some were Hanes. There were all these different shades of yellow. And he called them up and said, you know, I ordered Fruit of the Loom. And they said, you're a COD customer. Uh, you have your shirts. We have your money. Deal's done. And he thought, well... That's the state of customer service in the industry. Like, and he was mad. I think actually my mom said to him, like, look, you could do better. And, and so Sanmar was kind of founded a little bit on that kind of premise around service because that was really this bad experience he thought I had where he said, well, I could do better than that. But as you think about at that time, I don't know that there was any sort of consciousness of, hey, I've got to go to these factories in the Carolinas, in you know Alabama, in Georgia, and and visit the factory, see how the workers were treated, see how, you know, the, the, I, I don't know that, that that was part of the way we thought of the world at the time. It was really, um, you know, we were going to buy shirts, Haynes had a warehouse, they were going to send them to us, and we were going to buy them in a truckload and sell them pieces. So I don't know that that was really even in our consciousness at that time. Um, you know, and, and so I, I really think, um, Though once we started manufacturing our own product, which really wasn't to the mid '90s, and we started moving offshore to do that, that we started feeling a different level of responsibility around, you know, hmm, these products now have our name on them. I really want to make sure I understand how they're made, um, and, and so I think I think that's really the time when when we made that that shift. So as we look into 2017, it's just a few months away. What trends are defining social responsibility in 2017? Yeah. So a, a couple. I, th I think it's that that first thing I talked about, which that, that shift to kind of outside the fence. I, that's that is a huge kind of macro trend, which is not just again, um, you know, an auditing protocol in the factories but really trying to understand and supporting and promoting those work in the communities outside. So I think that's a huge one. I think there's two others though that I'd like to, I'd maybe highlight. I think the other one is partnerships. So su supply chains used to be this very proprietary thing that existed. I had a factory. It existed in the middle of kind of, you know, the, the forest in China, you didn't know where this factory was, and it was this competitive advantage that I had. And I didn't want to tell anybody about my factory. I didn't want anyone to know about my factory. Today, the world is so small in a different way that who's my factory, and that is is not the same secret that it was kind of 20 years ago. And so you're seeing this level of partnerships. People are partnering with NGOs. They're partnering with their competitors. Um, they're partnering with... Um, you know, governments, and they are um, all collectively saying, this stuff's important to us, but I can't do it alone. I'm only 10% of this factory's volume, but my competitors make up other pieces of this factory too, so what can we do collectively? So this idea that we're going to partner is, is social responsibility is a, is a big trend. And I spoke to it, but it's this transparency piece too. So again, this idea of supply chain being the secret um, is really changing, and I think that um, that level of visibility is uh, is just going to continue to kind of increase in, in in terms of importance. I think the companies that are the most progressive around this now have the most level of transparency, um, 
And I think you're going to see more and more companies move that direction. Well, and it's interesting you, you talk about this idea of transparency and this uh, um, secretive factory that, as you say, exists somewhere in the forest in China. Um, at the end of the day, what makes Sanmar or or any supplier, for that matter, special is not so much that secret secretive source where they're purchasing their shirts or their product, and it's, it's everything else that they wrap around it. Um, whether it's customer service, whether it's the responsiveness to customers, whether it's the product quality, whether it's how they market, how they support their customers. And and that that factory is only one part of the equation. And I think that you see that, that on the distributor side, too, where in the past I've been in the industry now for almost 20 years. And when I first got into it, this idea of who your supplier was, was of maximum importance. <laughs> You'd keep it very, very close to your chest. Whereas now I feel in this world of transparency, that's less important and other things become your competitive advantage, which I think is essential because um, you, you, you can't rely upon a supplier alone being your competitive advantage. You have to have other things you bring to the table. So I think you're, you're highlighting that on the supplier side, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's very much a parallel there. And and the, the reality is the, the factory base from like a sewing perspective is become commoditized. I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, um, and hundreds of sewing factories around the world that can make a polo shirt for you. So when we think about kind of supply chain competitiveness for us, it's the investments we've made in uh, kind of our, you know, quality teams that are in the factories. It's the investments we've made in having a, um, a global supply chain that takes advantage of, um, you know, the right product being made in the right country, given the right, you know, confluence of trade agreements, labor rates, um, you know, speed to market kind of, et cetera, that, that makes a, you know, that we still think we have a competitive advantage in our supply chain, but the secret piece of it is, re- is really gone away. Um, and, and I don't think that's coming. That's not moving backwards. That, that'll, that'll continue even more. Right. How do you get people to care about social responsibility when so many people just want a cheap t-shirt? I don't know if that's too cynical, but I, I w- still wanted to go there. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I, I, I think it is, um, the people that I work with, I think it is something that's important to them. I think the time of like, I'm just looking for the cheapest is is moving. Now, if you feel like there's three distributors that are all selling the t-shirt made by the same manufacturer that you think is, you know, does a good job and is socially responsible, um, you know, price becomes obviously important. But I think more and more people uh, – care about how their product is made. Uh, I think millennials and younger consumers, uh, it is a driving factor in, in a lot of their purchasing kind of decisions. And so um, I continue to think that that is something that uh, it's moving forward in a, in a strong way. And I don't think you're going to see kind of a, a, a turn back. I, I really believe that most people care Um and, and that there is some price that they're willing to pay for it. I think that there is a recognition that um, it, it's not free, but that it's a price that people are willing to kind of pay. Um, and and I, I think that I asked that 
I think knowing the answer to some extent, but I think if, if I put a distributor perspective on it, if, if let's say you've got an end client that says to you, I want the absolute cheapest rock bottom price. Well, for the, for, for a good distributor that opens up this opportunity to say, well, here is what the absolute rock bottom price looks like. And here is what we think a better option is, uh, looks like for your brand. And then to go through those different options. And I mean, some distributors may even refuse to supply a particular shirt if it compromises their ideals. But I think it, it, it opens up a really interesting conversation that the distributor can have with that particular end client about their brand, about their, their clients, about the emotional connection that they have with their audience. And social responsibility can tie so nicely into that. And I think a lot of it comes down to just education. Is that distributor salesperson, do, do they understand how social responsibility can be used as an effective sales and marketing tool? Absolutely. And and I would tell you, though, too, the other piece of it is what I've found over time is that factories that are more responsible in the way they take care of their people and the way that they are uh, you know, take care of the environment and the way that they are, um, you know, all the things that we think of as kind of these good things in factories, they also tend to have uh, – the best quality. They tend to ship on time. They tend to have, you know, less kind of defects. And so when we look at the cost of an item, there's the cost, here's the FOB cost from a factory of this polo shirt. It's $4.99, okay? But that's not that's not the full cost. And so you may have two factories and one's $4.99 and one's $4.85. But if the $4.99 factory delivers you a quality product, on time, that you don't have issues with, you know, at the end of the day, you actually might save money on that. And so one of the things that we've found over time is that, you know, I'll contradict myself a little bit. I said you kind of have to pay for being responsible. It, it, not all the time. You, you Sometimes you have to pay in that rock bottom FOB cost. But when you take into account the fact that it's um, the quality piece is there, it, you know, you, you earn back a lot of that kind of excess cost. Um, and so one of the things we do is when we look at uh, decisions on who's going to make a product, we basically have a kind of a supplier scorecard, so to speak, um, and um, how they how they rate in terms of responsibility for us is part of that scorecard. And when we make these sourcing decisions, we we lean heavily on that as part of it because it has high levels of predictive ability in terms of these other things that they're going to be good at, and so. I think there's a there's oftentimes a huge correlation between kind of those two things, and then I think exactly what you said. I think there are companies that say I want the absolute it's just the cheapest polo shirt that you could find to put my guys in today. That's what I want. But do you care about your brand? Do you care about your company? You know, I think the people that do recognize that that this shirt with your logo on it means something. And and that your brand means something, and I think the distributor sales reps that actually can sell that um, are are the better ones in the industry. The person who's just selling what's the cheapest polo possible, um, I, I actually think they're doing kind of a disservice to that to that client. Well, and I think at the end of the day, it could just be a quick transaction. They get a nice order, and it doesn't become a solution for the long term. And I think for distributors and suppliers alike. 
were in the business for the long term as opposed to the short term sale. Um, I, wa- I want to turn. Uh, I want to uh, turn my focus to Bangladesh. Um, did Sanmar have any suppliers who were involved in the Bangladesh building collapse a few years ago? Yeah. So so we didn't have any production uh, in, in in that building and. What's interesting about that, and, and we don't, we have over time, we've done a limited amount of work in Bangladesh. It hasn't been a big piece of our supply chain, and I'll tell you why in a second. But most of the brands that were there didn't know that they were there. That, that factory, for the most part, was used as a outsource factory. So in the past, it was very common for you to give production to her factory and for that factory to outsource a percentage of it down the street. So you would go and you'd look at your factory and you'd say, oh, this is a great factory. I've done my audits. They've passed. Well, that factory either didn't make your production or only made a percentage of your production. And you didn't have visibility to the factory that was actually making your production. And many of the brands that were in that building didn't know that they were there. Um, so I'll start with Bangladesh for a sec. It's, it, it is duty-free to Canada. It's duty-free to the EU. Um, and they have... They have a lot of inexpensive labor. It is also a very challenging country to work in from a uh, just you know uh, infrastructure is is terrible. Um, politically, it's not stable. They've got kind of a lot of challenges, and so for the U.S. Um, businesses, because there's not the duty free advantage there. Um, it's not really advantageous for us to be in Bangladesh. So we've only ever had really limited exposure there. A company that does a lot more business in Canada or Europe uh, looks at it a lot more favorably because of the, the duty piece. Um, it is, but the, this outsourcing concept has been a problem regardless of what country you're in. And, and so some of that collapse and some of the challenges have really focused us on making sure that our product is not being outsourced. And, and that's actually a really interesting challenge because um, these factories used it because they have a certain amount of capacity and brands want to order what they want to order. So Sanmar ideally wants to order 5,000 this month, 10,000 next, nothing the month after that, and then 50,000 the following month because we're trying to manage our inventory. Well, if you're in a single factory and they have lines of sewers, they can't always flex up and down to meet your needs. Uh, and so if you are allowing outsourcing, then they, that's okay. They would outsource your production. If you're not, which is where we are today, we've had to start thinking a lot more like a factory and a lot less like a wholesaler. And what I mean by that is if we owned the factory and we these were our sewers, we have to kind of keep at least a certain percentage of them busy um, constantly because if I'm not, then that sewing line just doesn't have anything to do. Um, And so I buffer that by my warehouses and my inventory because I don't necessarily want to order. So we've had to think in in an effort to work with our partners and be a good partner and not allow kind of outsourcing and be working these really compliant factories, we've had to think a lot more like a factory in the way that we um, do our planning and do our buying. And so, and, and it may sound like a small thing. It's actually been a huge shift in the way we actually plan our inventories and our production, but we've had to do it to kind of work with those factories. And so you don't end up in a factory like, um, the one that collapsed in Bangladesh. 
Right. So in other words, as a customer, you're able to be a much better customer to these factories offshore because you're able to provide them with reliable, consistent orders throughout the year. And I, I think that maybe an analogy would be like that general contractor that is coming to your house to renovate and the, the, the superior general contractor is the one who has his or her own trades that work almost exclusively for him or her. So that way you get really reliable service versus the general contractor who shows up and is then contracting out different people, the plumber, the, the roofer, the electrician on a contract basis because he or she cannot um, afford to employ them throughout the entire year. So your experience with the latter contractor is probably not going to be as good. Sure. Yeah. No. Fair. Fair parallel. And, um, but you know, the, I think uh, see the difference is in here. There are times where we're buying stuff that we don't need, and there's times where we wish we were buying more than we can. Uh, and so, it, but really, we we have to be very thoughtful about how we plan that production because we can only scale up and down so much if we want that factory to maintain our our production lines. But but that is a critical piece of. Um, of compliance in terms of not outsourcing because, um, and that's where a lot of brands have gotten in trouble. And certainly those brands that were in that factory, cause that was not a factory that was getting, you know, audited. That was, that was compliance in, in really in any way, certainly structurally. Uh, and, and it was a, a tragedy. Yeah. Well, and that's really interesting. I had, I had no idea that that was what that factory did. So thank you for shedding some light on that. Um, I, I want to talk about transparency and specifically what you can say about your factories when distributors and end clients are asking for specifics. What can you say versus what you cannot say? Yeah. So we have we've become a lot more transparent with our customers in terms of, of who our factories are or where production is made. Um there's a couple of things that that I struggle with sometimes, which is somebody will say to me, okay, can you guarantee me, I, I don't want any shirt made in, you know, pick a country, you know, they, for whatever reason, don't like, you know, China. Um, can you guarantee me this shirt wasn't made in China? And, and what I'll say to them is, you know, Sanmar does move production over time. And maybe it was made in China last year, and now it's made in Vietnam. Um, and... Um, so I can certainly share with them where it is made and where it's been made, but not necessarily the shirt that they're getting, um, where that one came from. And that's a little bit hard for, for me. Um, I also will have customers who will ask for um, auditing rights. They'll say, in, in a real blanket way, they'll say, hey, I, w- I need to be able to visit any of your factories kind of at any time. Uh, and we struggle with that a little bit because I can't – I have uh, – Factories who I'm placing a lot of demands on in terms of our rights, in terms of our ability to audit and, and to look at it, and I have, you know, tens of thousands of customers, so I can't, um, I can't have a factory that's getting audited, you know, 300 days a year because I've given these rights away to kind of everybody. But one of the things we do do is we've had some, you know. Um, you know, take a, this isn't a program that we have, but I'll give you an example. You know, every barista in the United States for Starbucks wears a green uh, apron. Um, and if, if we were the ones making the green apron for Starbucks, I would say, and Starbucks said to say, hey, we need to be able to go to that factory. I'd say, absolutely, you can have someone there all day long because 
we're making tens of thousands of green aprons. Um, and, and so we have, we do have a few large programs like that, that we do, um, where we have given kind of full audit rights to the brand because it's a big program of a product that usually has their name on it where we're doing actually, um, you know, the, the decoration at the facility, at the factory level. Um, and, and in those cases, we're happy to give kind of full transparency and audit rights to, uh, to those brands. Right. And I think that makes sense. So just, just, it, it's not that you're shying away from being transparent, but there's also a practical side of it that if you've got a distributor who is asking for full audit rights on 12 OGO bags, that's going to, uh, who cares who the end user is? It could be a big one or it could be a small one that just practically that's going to be a little bit more challenging than if Starbucks comes to you and says, Hey, we've got $10 million worth of merchandise we're ordering from you. We want to send some person full-time to go and audit the factory in Vietnam. Like it, it, that, it feels- yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And, and I think what we're saying to our customers is here's, here's what our global operating principles look like. Here's our fair labor association kind of membership. And here's what we do around that. Um, and, and what we hope in when the, you're ordering the 10 backpacks is that, that, that you're able to communicate that to your end user in a way that says, you know, I'm buying this from a source that is social responsible. Here's what they're doing. Um, even though I'm, you know, I haven't been to the factory personally or. We don't have the- right, right. And, and, and I think I think that the fact that you're prepared to have that very honest conversation about what you can and can't do, I think, is half the battle. Yeah. Um, and, and if a distributor or an end client is uncomfortable with that, then at least you have stated your position. So I think that that's I think that's important. Um so we've we've talked a lot about offshore countries in uh, in in Asia for production. I I, I want to turn my focus to the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. and get your perspective on on some U.S. Um, North or maybe North American focused uh, questions. Do you see apparel production coming back to the U.S. at scale anytime soon? Yeah. So uh, the short answer is short answer is no. The 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 long answer is a little bit more complicated. So there's there's two really basic components to making any, you know, apparel product. You have the textile piece, you know, we're knitting, weaving, etc., the fabric, and then you have the sewing piece, cutting and sewing it into kind of a garment. Um, there's different challenges with kind of different pieces. The 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 sewing piece today is heavily labor intensive, um, and so it tends to continue to happen in um, lower wage countries. Uh, the the textile piece is uh, kind of both power intensive, water intensive. Traditionally, it, it's also been kind of heavily regulated, and so it, it's not nearly as uh, so. So, I there's a couple of reasons why I think textiles might come back to the U.S. We have some of the lowest power rates in the world, uh, especially in the southeastern part of the United States, um, and it. And, you know, you have the raw material here, you have the cotton here, you have the yarn here. So I think there's possibilities. I think the challenge is around some of the regulations around it. And and can we set up a, a – can kind of our government be supportive enough of the industry that it's regulated in a way that makes sure it's doing it, – that it's not doing things that are unsafe, but that's um, free enough that it actually makes sense to be here. Uh, and I think – That'll be the challenge for textiles kind of in the United States. Um, and so 
I think today we're not uh, we're not making big bets that you're going to see um, apparel production moving back. I I also have a um, and again this is my own maybe political leanings. I'm sure this is certain people, but um, you know we feel like when we go to some of these developing countries and we're bringing kind of jobs and opportunities, especially in sewing, um, that these are these are good jobs for the people that are there. Um, I I think that in the U.S. that we should be a manufacturer. Uh, living in Seattle, you know, we're kind of the home of Boeing's commercial airplanes. I think we should make airplanes in this country. I think we should make. Um, I think we should be a manufacturer. I'm not sure we should be a manufacturer of t-shirts. It's the or polo shirts. It's some of the lowest skilled labor in the world, and it's. Um, it gives opportunities for some of these people in some of these developing countries that just wouldn't exist. Uh, and, and it's a really a first step on this like development round for them. So, um, you know, I'm going to be going to Africa in a couple weeks, uh, well, or early December. And, you know, uh, we do a lot of production in Tanzania in an area of the country called Morogoro, where there are not other opportunities for women to really have formal employment. If those jobs left Africa and, you know, went to Asia, if they came back to the U.S., um, those, there are not other opportunities kind of for those people, again, and mostly women, uh, beyond subsistence farming, etc. So, so I, I, I don't think it's going to come back to the U.S. from an economic standpoint, but I'm also not sure that it should from uh, just my own personal uh, political, moral kind of beliefs. We, you and I were having a, um, an interesting email exchange uh, a few weeks ago about automation in factories with specifically with the introduction of sewing robots or as they call them, sobots. I thought that was kind of a cute name for them. Um, are these good or bad for the apparel industry? And as a major buyer of apparel um, that that where sewing is a huge input cost. Um, I could see how this could be good and potentially bad for you. Can mm-hmm. you discuss? Yeah. So, you know, I think that. Um, so it's really interesting. I went in. I went in November to uh, to Milan to a trade show called ITMA, which is the Textile Machinery Association. So this is like it happens every four years, and these are the people who make spinning equipment, knitting equipment, dyeing equipment, sewing equipment, etc. And people around all the world go to every four years to kind of buy stuff, and. There were um, there was a lot of innovation that was happening around you know how do we make things faster how do we make things that are, use less water um, there were people there um, with some of these kind of robotic sewing things that they were showing them and, um, and and so there's obviously I think for decades been not that much innovation especially in the world of sewing because we were just able to find and keep finding cheaper labor. And at some point that piece runs out. And so I'm not surprised that people are putting kind of money and innovation around sewing today where you hadn't really seen that historically. Um, It's, it's um, potentially good from the standpoint of um, you can be consistent you know, a robot is going to be more consistent than a person. It's good that you, you know, when you start a factory today, there's real training costs and startup costs and all of these things. You, you know, especially if you go somewhere like Africa where people don't have that um, background in sewing and, and it, 
takes a long time to start up and their efficiencies aren't very high. And so, um, you know, startup costs or startup training time on a robot is very, very short potentially. So there's those kind of good things. And, and obviously, you know, we all try to buy it as efficiently as we can at the, you know, at lower pricing until, you know, maybe robots do that. I, I the negative for me is that I, I have spent this time um, seeing um, what these kind of low labor, low skill labor kind of jobs do to some of these communities and the ability that they have to be somewhat transformational. And so I, I worry for the women in these factories that if we are all have robots sewing our shirts in five years from now, that those jobs are going to disappear. And I'm not sure what replaces kind of those jobs. Um, and so you have jobs designing the robots, writing the software for the robots, maintaining them, but you have a that that's not replacing those three thousand women that are sewing the shirt. You know, the 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 ten people you have maintaining, writing code, etc. Don't replace those jobs. So I um, I have mixed feelings kind of about it. And then there's some really interesting people who things that people are working on. Um, I visited a company in San Francisco. And now it's been I don't know maybe a year plus ago um, uh, called Electroloom that are trying to use. Um, 3D printing to print shirts, uh, and this guy's these. This is more science experiment than business. And actually, I just got an email from them a little while ago because I'm on their distribution list that they ran out of funding. But their vision was: you have this 3D printer in your house. It's very Jetsons. You download whatever blueprint of a shirt that you want. Here's the new Nike shirt. I hit print, and it prints out, and I've got my shirt. So their vision is: there's no raw material you know, sourcing, there's no textiles, there's no sewing, um, forget about the robots, you're just going to print the shirt in your house. And I actually wore a shirt that they printed on their machine. And so um, it wasn't something commercially viable, you know, at that point. But if enough people and money are focused on it, you know, um, you know, we may not have sewbots, we just might have a printer in our house and you're printing the apparel, in which case, you know, I'll, Sandmar will be out of business, but, uh, you know, it'll be that there's some, you know, it's an interesting world for sure. All right. How, how did that shirt feel? Was it a little scratchy? Oh yeah. It's, it's not a shirt that you'd want to wear today. Um, it, it almost felt like it, it had the consistency of like a swim cap, but not nearly stretchy. It was kind of this poly that was, but, um, but again, this is really early in what these people are working on. Um, and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't bet that 10 years from now, somebody's not doing it in a, in a totally different way. So, well, and I think that that also, and even if that does take off, I think it speaks to the divergence that we have in our industry between B2C companies that are focused on apparel, uh, like your Zazzles, your Cafe Presses, where people will go and order customized um, uh, uh, apparel for specific use versus we were using Starbucks as the other example. Starbucks is buying tens of hundreds of thousands of shirts at scale. Um, it's hard to imagine that in that B2B context that a 3D printer on, on a barista's desk is going to do the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, unless everyone has one in their house and it's like, you know, I mean, that's that's their vision. So it's not a today vision, but who, who knows where it goes in the future. So, yeah. So, so 
I, I want to now uh, put myself in the shoes of a small importer. Okay, so we recognize Sanmar has got some luxuries in terms of you've been around for a long time. You're you're a large supplier. You have a lot of influence offshore. You can walk into a factory and people are going to listen to you because you're Sanmar. But let's look on the other end of the spectrum. So let's say I'm a small importer. What advice do you have for me? to ensure that factories are producing goods in a socially responsible way, but lack the influence and size and buying power that you have? Yeah, it's a, it, it is a, it's a tough, it's a tough answer or a tough question. Um, because the, the easy answer for me is try to leverage what kind of these larger brands and people that you really admire are doing. So if you feel like, you know, you think companies like Patagonia who are kind of really leading in terms of some of the responsibility um, and you're going to find out who are some of the factories that they're in and there's some of the, those are where, that's where I want to be. That, um, in fact, I would tell you that Sanmar took that approach as when we were kind of that small importer in the you know late 90s, we tried to find factories that we admired and said, oh, you're making for these guys. Okay, well, that gave us a level of confidence. Um, you want to, you, you, that's an okay place to start. You really want to be careful, though, that you, that you still understand. Um, okay, yes, you're making for Patagonia, but is it, um, how, are you, how are they, what type of vendor are you for them? Um, are you a vendor that they're really working with uh, to move away from because they're struggling, or are they a vendor that's one of their A-plus vendors that you really think is great? I mean, um, so there's some risk in that still. Uh, it's not it's not perfect. But I, the thing that I would tell you is I think that it is a world that people are um, sharing more and of more transparency. And there are some of these um, good organizations like the uh, Sustainable Apparel Coalition or the FLA. Um, there's companies that are much more willing to kind of share. So go to some of these conferences. Talk to the sourcing directors of these companies. That The idea that their supply chain is a secret is really gone. So if you're at, you know, if you're at the, you know, FLA meeting, if you're at the Sustainable Apparel Coalition meeting, you know, and you get the chance to talk to these people, uh, ask them where you should go. You've got a niche shirt. You're looking at this part of the world. You know, can you recommend some factories that are great? Uh, that's a good starting place, I think. And, and that's maybe where I would start. You, you mentioned Patagonia there, so this actually feeds nicely into my next question. For, for you, Jeremy, which brand, now it could be a retail brand or it could be someone in the promotional products industry, Sanmar excluded. That's not fair for, for yeah. you to say Sanmar is the answer to this question. But which brand is the very best at social compliance, retail or promo or both? Yeah. Um, should, you know, it's a little. It's a little bit hard for me to answer. I certainly Patagonia does a. I think a great job, and they are. It's a huge. It's like who I think of when you say who's a really responsible apparel company because it's such a huge part of the way they go to market and of their, um, of their um, their kind of identity uh, is so wrapped up in it. I would tell you, I, I sat on a panel last year with um, a guy named Bill Strickland who runs sourcing for PVH which owns Calvin Klein, um, Tommy Hilfiger, um, Phillips Van Hughes, and they own kind of a bunch of brands. Um, and he, uh, he is the really the driving force. We, this is a panel at the Magic Trade Show, which is kind of the largest apparel, retail apparel trade show. 
and it was on sourcing in Africa. And he is the um, he is the driving force behind um, a uh, a development that's happening in, in, in Ethiopia in a city called Hawassa. And uh, Sanmar is investing alongside them and some and many others in this in Hawassa. And I'm I'm going there in December, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I think Bill has been a real uh, leader in the way uh, sourcing companies think about that kind of over-the-fence type things that I talked about before. And I, um, so I would put them as a company. Um, it doesn't, it's not around their, their, it's not the way they kind of market and their brand the way Patagonia does, but I think they're doing some really innovative things. Um, and I'll just give you an example. So one of the things when, when companies thought like um, inside the fence, they thought, okay, we're going to build a factory. We're going to make sure there's good water treatment. We're going to make sure there's good cafe for people. We're going to make sure there's medical care for our staff. We're going to make sure maybe there's child care. Those things were all great, but they didn't think about outside the fence. So what happened in a lot of countries is you had people that moved from rural areas to some of these urban areas to work at the factory. And so they created slums um, outside the factory with out schools, without water, you know, um, kind of proper hygiene for people, without proper housing. And so everything was great inside the fence and things were really challenging outside the fence. In Hawassa, it's kind of this chance to start from scratch. And Bill, again, is leading this effort. So it's not just, you know, we're going to do all those things inside the fence. We're going to have, you know, medical care and food and we're going to, you know, things for the workers. But we're also thinking, how do we make sure there's schools for their kids? How do we make sure that there's housing for them that's appropriate, that has sanitation attached to it? How do we make sure those things exist in an appropriate way? Um, and and so I, I, I'd maybe put PVH and, and Bill's efforts in Hawass as a company I, I admire. So I've got uh, just one or two more questions for you. I feel like we could go on all day about this because it's so fascinating. Um, so I, I, again, I'm, I'm putting on a cynics hat here and I want you to, to, to address this. What do you say to critics who suggest that investing in social responsibility is a mere marketing ploy, much like the greenwashing critique when eco-friendly became a trend in the promotional products industry about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I think here's, here's, here's the thing. I think the difference between kind of greenwashing is it was like it sounded green, but it nece- wasn't necessarily, right? Um, I, think the, I think the idea here is that if our consumers uh, – didn't care if this wasn't something that was important to them, to the companies, it becomes a hard thing that's important for, for these brands. Okay. And so I think that there's, um, but what I believe is that when, when actually you can do the most good as a company is when your, um, economic incentives are aligned with kind of things that are kind of good for people. So if it's in Sanmar's best interest from an economic standpoint to source in a responsible way, um, well, heck, now I'm I'm really going to do that. And I can actually now affect kind of real good in the world. Now, if I'm just saying it and I'm not doing it, that that's a different story. But if I'm being just completely self-interested and saying, hey, I'm doing this because if I do, I'm going to sell more stuff because distributors and their end users care, then 
that's an okay, I don't, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and, and so I, what, what's exciting for me a little bit about this and what I've seen is that I, I think that, um, I think you should, I, I think there's a opportunity for us as a supplier to do, uh, so many more things, um, in the world that are good, not because we think it's even the right thing to do or that we just, it fills, you know, like my, my own personal kind of ethical bucket or makes me feel good as a person. That, those things are great, but when that aligns with and it actually helps me sell more shirts, um, that's the huge win because I invest in a, in a whole different way. Um, so, and and we should tell the story, and I think distributors should tell the story of some of the good things. I mean, Samar is working on um, building some more marketing around um, some of the good things that we're doing in the world, and I don't think it's cynical to tell the story. I actually think it's important, and I want distributors to tell it. I'm, we're trying to build it in a way that you, as a distributor, can take that to your end user and use it as marketing materials and kind of selling pieces to say, hey, you know what, every time you're buying one of those sport tech t-shirts, you're actually helping a woman in Africa who, you know, support her family. Um, and you shouldn't buy it from that reason, but gosh, you can also feel good about yourself in, in what you're doing. And so, um, I think it's okay to be cynical, but I also think there's a recognition that um, that it's actually doing um, kind of positive things. And at the end of the day, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I mean, I think the reason for the question is that you probably have uh, examples, and I don't have specific ones at my fingertips, but I suspect you've got examples where some companies have abused the the um, the theme of social responsibility and have abused it for their own benefits, right? They're they're not really walking the walk; they're just they're just talking about it, and then it gives everyone a bad name. But I, I think at the end of the day, consumers particularly consumers that are interested in social responsibility are going to sniff out the frauds pretty quickly. And at the end of the day, if I'm sitting there as Sanmar and you know, you're, you're the exact opposite of this, but if, if for some reason Sanmar was trying to pull a fast one over distributors and end clients who really cared about social responsibility, it would come back and bite you in the, in the butt a hundred times louder than had you not done it in the first place. So as smart business people, why would you do that? Yeah, no, I agree with that. But I would tell you that, you know, being socially responsible and, and being compliant is really hard to do. Okay. And, and it's not a hundred percent, uh, thing. It is a, it's a goal and it is a path that you work on and it's an iterative thing with factories. So you work with factories and you find challenges and you work with them to improve and you do these things. And so, you know, and, and that's true with everybody at, at really at every level of kind of production from my Patagonia PVH to Sanmar to whoever you think is, you know, you know, gets a bad rap for some of these things. Um, you could go to factories where there's Sanmar production today and you can absolutely find problems. In fact, we find problems all the time. Um, I don't mean that uh, we have certain red lines of things where it's like, okay, we can't work with you anymore, but there are challenges that we find. Um, and and uh, then it becomes for us to work to kind of make it better. And so that's the other thing that I want people to kind of recognize around social responsibility and the supply chain piece is it's not a, um, I think people want it to be like, okay, this factory is uh, good or bad, it passed at 85%, that's my minimum kind of number and I'll move forward. We don't, we look at it that way, but we look at it more as a ability to 
to improve a factory over time. And we want to be a good partner by moving them, call it up this um, value chain and up the social responsibility chain and improve the lives of their workers. But it's not an overnight thing and it's not a yes or no thing, if, if that makes sense to you. Um, now there's certain things we go to a factory and if we have, um, I'll, I'll give you a real example. We had a factory last year that um, we had an audit. Um, the, when the audit was done, they, the, the, um, like an person at the factory dropped an envelope in, in our auditor, this is an independent auditor's bag and said, you know, if it, with an envelope, you know, thanks for a good, you know, kind of audit review. Um, and, and we, what was, what was really actually disappointing was the factory had passed the audit. It was not a failing factory. It was a pretty good factory. Um, and we ended up walking away from that factory because bribery for us is a is a red line. Um, and uh, so there's certain things where we will just say we can't. That's not an environment we can tolerate. We're not willing to be in a factory that kind of is bribery. But um, responsibility is this continuum, and it's really we look at us as us pushing factories in a positive direction. Right. No, that's uh, that's that that's great. I mean, I love that image of the, you know, the bulky envelope filled with a bunch of uh, cash. <laughs> it feels like it's in a movie, but I mean, obviously, it's a red line and and completely non negotiable and, and not something that would ever be entertained. Um, so, so Jeremy, in in terms of trying to wrap this up, this has been a huge. Um, conversation. So first of all, thank you so much for uh, addressing some of the questions which were intended to be hard questions. And I think that you've been really honest about it. Um, so for folks that are listening to this that are curious to learn more about social responsibility, to get up on the trends and to, to just learn more about building this into their distributorships or, or their supplier companies, are there any specific websites, um, conferences, blogs that you could refer to? And then specifically anything that you do at Sanmar in terms of resources that you could direct people towards. Um, you can mention it now and then we'll put all of this in the show notes as well for people. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's funny. the best opportunity to learn is actually Twitter. Um, and if you go on Twitter and you kind of type in, um, you know, socially responsible apparel as a kind of a keyword or some of these things, you will find that there's just a ton of people out there um, that you can follow. And I, I don't have any. I wish I had a couple of specifics to give you. Um, but th that's been um, uh, that's a really interesting way to kind of start. And you'll see that there's really people who are, who are you know, writing articles and white papers and are kind of innovative about it. There are certainly conferences. There's one called Green Biz. There's another one called BSR. I think it's the Business of Social Responsibility Conference. Um, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and the FLA are the two organizations that kind of were involved in. Um, I don't believe their conferences are kind of open to the public, but um, they're good resources. Um, but, but, you know, there are social media is just kind of interesting as a way to kind of start finding some of these people that are, um, that are really talking about this issue um, and, and is an interesting place to start. And you don't have to, it won't take you that long to find some great resources there. In terms of Sanmar, we do have on our um, website, we do kind of a, uh, a CSR document. Um, we've not been as great, uh, to be honest, as we as we could about kind of um, 
developing it the way I would hope. So we're actually something that we're um, we've hired kind of somebody who works in our uh, works for our compliance group who's going to be kind of more focused on developing some of that right now. Um, and but there are some resources at Tanmar uh, on our website around responsibility that you can read as well. Right. And, and you've also got Sanmar University. Are there resources on Sanmar University or do you, or would you like to talk a little bit about Sanmar University and how it is that it can help distributors sell apparel better? I mean, yeah. hopefully from, yeah. hopefully so, from yeah. you, but at least the apparel better as a, as a category. Yeah. So, so Sanmar University is, um, is early in its, in its life stage, but we have a lot of exciting plans around it. So for us, it was really a chance for us to create content to help our distributors kind of uh, learn more about how to sell apparel in an effective way. And so um, we do kind of webinars that we tape that you can watch at any point. Um, I think we have coming up one up on, on outerwear, um, but we have done some really great ones on kind of more product there. But I think over time you will see some on social responsibility. Um, I'm at, we're actually, it's kind of an interesting project right now. We're, we're filming a, uh, we're doing a video. Uh, we've asked all of our product developers, these are the folks who travel for here, to take a camera with them um, and just see what they're seeing when they go to some of these factories and maybe talk to some of the people. And so that's something that's exciting that we're kind of working on right now. Uh, so Samar University is a great place to start learning about kind of basics of apparel. And, and I think over time, we're really going to hopefully develop uh, some robust content there uh, or that'll help they help for distributors. Right, right. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. This uh, 60 minutes went by in about uh, six seconds for me. So it was uh, great, but certainly action-packed and really want to thank you for your candor and your honesty, as well as just the huge amount of detail that you were uh, you were able to get into. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. It was great talking to you again. It's a, it's an, it's a, a topic that for me is, is uh, I'm passionate about. I am passionate about... Um, helping the people that make our product. I mean, I think that and the communities that they live in. And one of my messages for just distributors in general is I think that um, what you do when you're out selling the product, sometimes you don't recognize the people that you're helping. But there are um, real people around the world whose lives are truly bettered, um, you know, kind of as, as you go out and buy product. Um, and and you sell product. And so it's just something I, you know, that I want people to know about and I want people to feel good about because I think it's something that's, uh, they, they are really making a difference. It, we couldn't, we couldn't buy the product and support these folks if you weren't out selling it. Um, so it's, it's clearly a partnership. Right. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.